welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, New Living Translation Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, New Living Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time barista. Well, he turns on the coffee maker and puts in those little cups. Today on Anchored by Truth, as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we are continuing our series where we focus on the earthly birth and life of Jesus. In today's culture, It seems as though just about everybody has heard about Jesus, but fewer and fewer people actually know much about him. Do you agree with that, R.D.? Yes. Jesus' name is certainly well known in our modern culture, but unfortunately I'm afraid that there is as much or more misinformation that circulates around Jesus than there is actual fact. I'm afraid that more people get information about Jesus from specials on TV or even so-called documentaries which purport to show us the real Jesus or from dramatized movies, many of which are maybe well-intentioned, but they contain particular points of view that are not consistent with the Bible. Or people even get information from conversations with friends. And all of that is good in one way, because it means that people are talking about Jesus. Jesus is a figure of considerable interest in our modern culture. But unfortunately, from a lot of those sources, rather than getting information in fact, people are getting misinformation. And that's really a shame, because first of all, the Bible is readily available for everybody to read and get all the essential information that they need about Jesus. But also, because there are a lot of fine, well-documented books and articles that have been produced by orthodox, conservative, excellent Christian scholars through the years. 
The bad news is that in our day and time, a lot of misinformation circulates about Jesus. But the good news is that for those people who are truly interested in knowing the actual historical Jesus, it may be easier than any time in history in order to get that information. But just as a caution to everyone, to all of us, we need to be careful about the sources that we use, and we need to be sure that we are getting information from sources who have an interest in getting the facts right about Jesus rather than trying to distort his life or record. So today, we want to continue to provide the listeners to Anchored by Truth with a head start on doing their own study about Jesus. As you have so often said, Jesus is the centerpiece of both the Bible and the plan of redemption. So to be confident not only in our own faith, but to help those who are still looking for anchors for their own lives, it's imperative we know the real Jesus of the Bible. But before we get too deep into our discussion, how about telling us a little bit about the Christmas poem that you're going to continue today? I'd love to. As I mentioned in an earlier episode of Anchored by Truth, years ago I worked in one of those big state agency buildings that's so common around our town. And when I was working in that state agency, I kind of wanted to give some Christmas presents, but sometimes doing that in a state agency can be tricky depending on the positions that the various people may occupy. Well, I decided that one present I could give everybody was just to give them a little entertainment. So I wrote a poem, what I called my Christmas epic, that was in the spirit of the kinds of Christmas poems that I had had and known about when I was growing up. And just to add a little more interest to the poem, I constructed it in six parts, and I ended each part with a little bit of a cliffhanger, which harkened back again to my early years when you would go to the movies. And at the movies, there would be a short serial before they played the actual film. And at the end of that serial, there would always be the hero or heroines being left in a precarious position just to make sure that you would come back and see the next part of the story and make sure they would get your, and I'm dating myself now, get your quarter or your 50 cents so you could see the next Saturday afternoon adventure. So this is a Christmas story. We're calling this The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest. This is a Christmas story in six parts, and each part is designed to leave you wondering what would come next. And so in our first part, we found out that there was a group of small koala bears who had gone on a quest searching for the lair of who they thought of as the great white koala bear, their creator. And their quest for the great white koala bear had led them deep into the Arctic. And where we left off last time was that the whole band of the searching koala bears was right on the verge of perishing because they would rather die than give up their quest. All right, then. So, let's continue with the story. Here's Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Kumari's Quest, Part 2. They reasoned together as brothers about the purpose of their quest, and once again affirmed that they had only sought the best. They finished the climb to the top, expecting only more snow, and could scarce believe their eyes when they beheld a shimmering glow. A radiance calm and pure was shining wonderfully, and death's near door was closed by the golden eucalyptus tree. So they settled the valley around and discovered to their delight a land both fair and fruitful 
nourished by clear, warm light. Through many generations they flourished and built a thriving town whose center was the saving light their brave forebears had found. Never did the bears forget what had stayed death's sure hand, and they tenderly cared and kept the treasure that marked their land. So each generation that rose made it a special honor to be the koala that was chosen to care for the fabled tree. For only the pure of heart were worthy to be asked, and only the kind and noble received the precious task. So in this joyous season, one small bear still walked toward home and hearth and warmth, not knowing the danger that stalked. But not just any bear was out this lonely night, but the bear considered most worthy to guard their guiding light. Still young in koala bear years, but great in faithfulness, the bear who was called Komari had passed the hardest tests. Not tests of strength or body, but challenges to spirit and soul, touchstones that opened in her, new visions that slowly took hold. Like those who came before her who had cared for the golden tree, her service to a greater cause helped her grow to maturity. Mind you, she never reflected about changes occurring within or how she grew to be different from those she knew as friends. Even on this fateful night, she thought not of star or sky, but of the meaning of the season, of the tree, and how and why. How the bears had come to the valley and why they had not died and why she had been chosen from the others who had tried. She somehow knew within her she hadn't reached the mountain's peak, but she had no clue or sign of what more there was to seek. So like the bears long ago, she paused in homeward tread to consider the path before her before turning to quilt and bed. And as she cast her eyes about her in searching and questioning gaze, she was caught by the unexpected, for to the east she saw the haze. A greenish and blackish fog rolled round the hills to the east, Though she knew not the source, she felt the presence of the beast. I really like some of the images from that part. The bears wanted to know more about their creator, the great white koala. So they went north looking for his lair, in essence his throne room. And while they didn't find that, 
they found a place where his beauty, light, and warmth were manifest on this world around a visible symbol of his presence, the golden tree. So for a while, those early bear explorers and their children were able to just enjoy the blessings of being so close to the one who created them and inspired their search. But just like in the real world, the ending of part two tells us that there is always a force in this world that would like to take away the peace we have in Christ. And it will take real courage to resist that force. And commitment and sacrifice. And it's hard to have those virtues if we don't know why we've been sent on our own quests, isn't it? I mean, God's grace has saved us just like the golden tree saved the bears. But as the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, they had to work hard to show the results of their salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in them and us, giving them and us their desire and the power to do what pleases him. God's grace saves us, but our sanctification requires effort on our part. Right. There's an old song that says that there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Well, part of that obedience is to be able to tell others why we believe that Jesus was qualified to be our Savior. And that starts with us being assured that Jesus was a real historical figure, not a myth or some kind of pious concoction. A myth or a pious concoction can't save anybody. Only a real live person who did the things that Jesus did was qualified or could be qualified to be our Savior. Well, in our day and age, one of the criticisms that's hurled against the Christian faith is that Jesus, the Jesus that Christians worship, is either a mythological figure or, if he even existed at all, that we can't trust the gospel accounts for accurate information about him. But the truth is that Jesus was a real person, and we see that from passages like the ones we used for our opening scriptures. In these passages, we can see that the Bible tells us specific facts about Jesus, like where he was born, in Bethlehem, and when, during the reign of a king named Herod. But beyond even what scripture tells us, Jesus' life is a fact that is even confirmed by sources outside the Bible, isn't it? And that's what you wanted to focus on today right? The fact that we have historical sources outside the Bible that confirm Jesus' historicity and even confirm many of the details contained in the Gospels about his life, death, and circumstances. Right, exactly. In some earlier episodes of Anchored by Truth, we've discussed the fact that you can use the existence of the physical universe and apply logic and reason to come to the conclusion that there is a self-existent being that must be responsible for the creation of the universe and the creation of living creatures. But that line of reasoning can only carry you so far in understanding God, because that line of reasoning would give us almost no information about other attributes that are essential parts of the Christian faith such as the plan of redemption or Jesus' role in it. So for us to be able to understand that, we need to have a special revelation from that self-existent being, from God. And fortunately, we have that special revelation in the Bible. But in order for that to be meaningful to us, we need to be persuaded that that revelation is true and reliable. And once again, logic, reason, and evidence can play a role in validating the Bible's claim that it is the inspired Word of God. And that's where extra-biblical sources can be helpful. 
Now, these sources don't add anything to the Bible. They don't make it any more the Word of God because it already is. But these extra-biblical sources can add to our individual confidence that the Bible is describing history accurately when it speaks of historical events. So today, you want to take a brief look at some of the other historical sources that also confirm that Jesus was a real historical figure. You know when you think about it, it's remarkable that there would be any other surviving sources outside of the Bible who would mention Jesus. In his day and time, if Jesus hadn't been Son of God, he would have been just another obscure and unimportant itinerant preacher that had a brief public ministry in a distant Roman province. He never led an army, held a prominent government or political position, or even wrote a book. Plus, his public ministry only lasted three years, and he didn't travel all that widely. His public ministry was all conducted within 100 miles of his home and he died the death of a common criminal. So if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, the Son of the Almighty God, he should have faded from the pages of history as just another local crank. But he didn't. He's mentioned by some of the most important historians of his age, men who had far more earthly distinction than he did. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start by talking about a few examples of well-known Roman historians who are widely regarded as having written important histories of the Roman Empire and its conquest. And the examples that we're going to use today came from an article available on the website Cold Case Christianity, that's coldcasechristianity.com, entitled, Is There Any Evidence for Jesus Outside the Bible? Now, of course, we'll put a link to this article in the notes that accompany the podcast version of the show. Anyway, the first example that we want to use for an extra-biblical source about the life of Jesus is a quote from Cornelius Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman historian, and he was well known for his analysis and examination of historical documents, and so he's one of the most trusted of the ancient historians. In addition to being an historian, He was also a Roman senator under Emperor Vespasian, and he was also the proconsul of Asia. Now, Tacitus wrote his annals around 116 AD, and in one portion of his annals, he describes the Roman emperor Nero's response to the great fire in Rome and Nero's claim that the Christians were to blame. So this is a quote from Tacitus and his annals. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So again, just listening to this very brief account from an extract from the Annals of Tacitus, we learn that that Tacitus confirms that there was a man who lived in Judea, who was known as the Christ, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and who had followers who called themselves by his name, called themselves Christians, and that those followers were persecuted for following Christ. This account is helpful because it confirms a number of details directly about Jesus. But it's also important for another reason, isn't it? A few episodes ago, 
We talked about the fact that Luke and the other gospel writers were meticulous when it came to their historical recording and reporting, so much so that they got some obscure details right, even when other ancient historians got them wrong. So this quote from Tacitus helps illustrate that point too, doesn't it? Very good. That's pretty impressive. You noticed that Tacitus called Pontius Pilate procurator of Judea, not the prefect of Judea. Thank you. I try. And you're absolutely right. As good a historian as Tacitus was, and he was a very good historian, he was human, and in this case he did make a mistake. He got Pilate's title wrong. And of course for years there were questions about the existence and the actual title of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, of course, was the Roman governor who presided over the trial of Jesus. And for years, there were questions about him, about his actual existence, and what his title was, in part because later Roman writers, such as Tacitus, almost always referred to Pilate as the procurator of Judea. But Luke and the other gospel writers called Pilate a governor, or a prefect. They called him a governor, not a procurator. Well, the fact that governor or prefect was the correct title was confirmed in 1961 when a two-by-three-foot piece of stone was found that had a Latin inscription, and the translation of the Latin inscription read as follows. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. So this find was not only an archaeological confirmation of the existence of Pilate, but it was also confirmation that Pilate was the prefect or governor of Judea, not a procurator, as Tacitus called him when he wrote his annals. In fact, we know that the title procurator was not used at the time of Jesus' trial for the Roman governors. The title only came into usage at a later time during the reign of the emperor Claudius, A.D. 41-54. through During Claudius' reign, the title of the Roman governor shifted from prefect to procurator. So although Tacitus was correct about the title in use for the Roman governor of Judea at the time he wrote, about 60 years later, strictly speaking, that was not Pilate's actual title when he supervised the trial and execution of Jesus. Pilate was a prefect, a governor, not a procurator, a fact that the Bible writers got right. So who's next on the list of extra-biblical writers? Well, before we close today, we should probably take a quick look at one of the most famous of all of the ancient historians, Josephus. And one of the reasons that Josephus is so important, not only to the recording of ancient history, but also particularly to Christians and Jews, is because Josephus lived very close to the time of Jesus. He personally lived during the period of the early church's formation. Josephus was born in 37 AD, and he died in 101 AD. Now, the most widely accepted year for the crucifixion is 33 AD, so Josephus was born just four years after the crucifixion. And he wrote an extensive history of the Jews in 93 AD called The Antiquities of the Jews. So today when you hear or see people referring to Josephus' history, you'll often hear it referred to just as The Antiquities. Josephus gave us more detail about Jesus than any other non-biblical historian. And just to tell you a little bit about Josephus, Josephus himself was a pretty interesting character. First of all, he became a consultant for Jewish rabbis at a very early age, and in fact he became a Galilean military commander by the age of 16. Josephus was an eyewitness to much of what he recorded in the first century AD. 
Now, as a Jewish military leader, initially Josephus was fighting against the Romans, but later he actually surrendered to them, and through a series of steps and trials, he eventually became an advisor to the Roman Emperor Vespasian. So, under the Roman Emperor Vespasian, Josephus was actually allowed to write a comprehensive history of the Jews, who were, of course, his people. And Josephus's history of the Jews, again, he's not writing this as a history of Christians. He's writing a history of his people, the Jews. But his history of the Jews includes three passages about Christians. And one of his passages, he actually describes the death of John the Baptist, which, of course, is also recorded in the Bible. In another one of the passages in Josephus's Antiquities, he mentions the execution of James and describes James as the half-brother of Jesus the Christ. And then there's a final passage in Josephus, which describes Jesus as a wise man and the Messiah. Now, there is some legitimate controversy about the writings of Josephus, because when the writings were discovered, it was asserted, and there's some evidence, that portions of his writing had been changed or had been altered in order to provide a more robust defense of the Christian faith. But notwithstanding the fact that there is some controversy about him, most historians regard Josephus' writing as a very important historical resource, and there have been a lot of scholarly reconstructions that have been done about Josephus' writing. And so we can look to one of those conservative scholarly reconstructions about Josephus' writing to gain some information about Jesus. Sounds like a perfect time to go to prayer. Since we're approaching Thanksgiving, How about if today we listen to a prayer for the special day when we turn our attention to the goodness that God has shown to us? A Prayer Celebrating Thanksgiving Blessed and wonderful Father, You are the one true God, the Lord and Master of all. We praise and glorify Your name, for You are mighty in deed and in name. You are the foundation of our faith, our sure hope, and the source of all our blessings. Lord, we want to thank you for those blessings, so many of which are manifest on this day. History tells us that our forefathers established Thanksgiving as a way to acknowledge your provision in their lives. We want to continue in their footsteps to acknowledge that all good gifts come only from you and that we are completely dependent upon you for all our needs. We pray that you will be merciful to us in the future, even as you have been in the past. We praise you that you have continually provided for us, even in those times when we were hard-pressed and struggling. We are amazed and blessed by your generosity and kindness. Father, among our greatest blessings are those of family and friends. Help us always to cherish them and to not take them for granted. We know that there are many this day who are without their families and far away from their friends. We pray that you would be a powerful and immediate presence to them. We pray that you would be the great comforter to them, closer than a brother and more real than the air they breathe. Bring to our minds any who have need of the comfort that we can provide. Inspire us to reach out to them in the way that will bring them the most comfort. We especially remember our soldiers whose duties have separated them from their loved ones, and we remember their loved ones. We pray that you would be the tie that binds them together, no matter what distance is between them. 
We pray that you would guide us to be the heart and hands of Jesus, to minister to them, ever calling to our minds that there are always times when we will need others to be Jesus to us. Thank you for the food we share and enjoy this day. It is the visible and tangible reminder you know our needs and provide them. As we break bread in fellowship and thanksgiving, we are reminded that the heavenly bread with which you met our deepest need was the body of your precious Son. We praise you especially for the atonement that he made for our sins, and it is in his holy and blessed name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all those episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal C. Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. We'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest, are available from our website and from Amazon. And in our next episode, we'll be sharing part three of Komari's Quest. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.